Today's reading is from John chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. I'll be reading from the New International Version. Please follow along as the text is presented on the screens. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders were there looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe him. Therefore, Jesus told them, My time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I am not going up to this festival, because my time has not yet fully come. After he had said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now, at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, Where is he? Among the crowds, there was a widespread whispering about him. Some said, He is a good man. Others replied, No, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. The word of the Lord. Our family is a, uh, a mixture of wonder and amazement and all the cool stuff, and then sometimes they're just flat out weird. <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that what families are? Just the wonderful mix of wonder and weirdness. And there's no place else that incubates, uh, and I, I don't mean this in a bad way, but the expectations in families are uh, cultivated there. And the pressure comes in families. And did you notice that Jesus' brothers don't believe in him? And how that relationship, uh, yeah, it's kind of a tough deal. Well, uh, since it's Thanksgiving week, we're talking about uh, that a little bit, families. And some of you will feel the pressure of expectations this Thursday as you gather. And uh, I just want to re- I reflect back on our time when our, when our kids were little and we had to decide every year how we're going to do that because my parents lived uh, about an hour and a half from Patty's parents. And, you know, how do you... Uh, we felt this pressure, and I think a lot of it was just internal to us. They didn't put anything on us, but you feel this pressure to be in two places at once, which for most of us is really hard. And so you either go with the half-day plan, which means you're on the freeway half the time, or you go with the other every-other-year plan. Am I making sense here? Are you, yeah. And, and, and uh, families, and then you get there, and for me at least, I always feel like, who am I as an adult child? Uh, this is how my parents are gone now, but I always felt like, am I still that, that teenage boy that runs to the refrigerator first things and opens it up and sees what, you know, just make sure the light bulb works, you know? Or am I some adult that is supposed to be responsible now? And all that stuff gets worked out in families as they gather. Jesus understands the awkwardness and the weirdness of families. That's, you remember when we, a few weeks ago, his mom wanted him to do something at this wedding in Cana and how that was kind of a weird deal. And now these brothers are wanting him to do something. And um, we're going to end this series today. So uh, next week is the first Sunday in Advent and we'll be in a series called Waiting in the Dark. Uh, So 
this, uh, we're going to end this with two, I'm going to get them up here, uh, two voices that we hear, and then we're going to have the students uh, come on, or Mark, Mark Neely's going to come up and talk about students and pressure. But here's the voices that, this, that creates the pressure. You are what you do, and you are what other people say about you. Those two things will create all kinds of pressure in your heart. And we, if we're all honest here, we all can say, I know what that feels like. I, both of those things, I'm in it. I live in that, in, that, in that place where those voices are very real. And it's not just students. It's all of us. It would be better if we owned it than to, admit, than to try to deny it. So Jesus is really the only one that can help us through that. And um, we're going to look at this passage to see how he does that, how he navigates those pressures. John chapter 6. I want to go back to where we were actually the last two weeks and look at John chapter 6 just really carefully because it's an amazing chapter. It's one of the longest chapters we have in the Bible, or at least in the New Testament. 71 verses, I believe. And it starts out with Jesus doing an amazing thing with 5,000 people. What does he do? He feeds them. He feeds 5,000 people out of a couple of fish and loaves of bread. Amazing thing. And the people loved it. They were so impressed by Jesus as a leader. So impressed, in fact, that they wanted to make him king. And Jesus' response to that kind of popularity from the crowd. This is like the peak of his popularity with the crowds in the Gospels. Is to withdraw from there into a place of prayer with his father. And then the next day... They come to him, at least some of these people come to him, and they're trying to find him because they want to make him king, and they also want him to answer some questions. And he says really, really hard stuff to them that they can't digest. In fact, they choke on it, if you remember that. And so we end up at the end of this. It, it, on one day, we've got this crowd of 5,000 plus, and at the end of the next day, we've got 12 a remnant, basically. It's boiled down. Jesus has managed with all of his skill to boil it down just to 12 people now who are following him. Go figure. So uh, the brothers in chapter 7, so that's chapter 6, from the height of popularity to just a few left. And the brothers, these brothers of Jesus, have a plan, it seems, to get him back, you know, get that momentum back. And the way to do that, they're in Galilee, which is in the north of Israel, about 100 miles from Jerusalem. The way to do that is to, to take advantage of the opportune PR moment and go down to Jerusalem during the festival, the Feast of the Tabernacles, one of the main three festivals in Israel. There'll be crowds there from everywhere, and that's where you can regain your popularity. So that's what's going on here. You get the sh- take your show on the road with you and do something big. And by the way, it might not, he doesn't say this in the text, but it's kind of hinted at. By the way, don't say the hard stuff. Look what happened last time. Just do the big stuff. Big, big, big. That's what we need. People will be impressed. Okay. The brothers. The pressure of family. What really matters is what people say about you. And what you do. So here we go. The brothers said to Jesus, You ought to leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. No one, listen to this, no one who wants to be a, uh, become a public figure acts in secret. And the NLT translates that. No one who wants to be famous does things in a hidden way. You want to be famous? Then get it out there. Take it on the road. Show people. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. 
for even his own brothers did not believe in him. The word world there is, in, in John's gospel particularly, uh, John loves this word world. And it gets, if you read it in a flat way and interpret it only in one way, you're going to miss what John is saying. So, you can read the word very negatively or very positively. I'll start with the positive. For God so loved the world, that you see John 3, 16. And God does love the world. And the way the world gets used there, the, word, the Greek word is cosmos, right? God so loved the created world, just like in Genesis chapter 1. God so loved the world, at the end of each day of creation, he said, it is good, it is good, it is good. And at the end of the sixth day, when he created us, people, humans, he said, it is very good. And so God loves the created world, and he loves human beings more than anything. We're created in his image. We have a special place in creation. That's what the world means in a positive way. However, in the negative way, which is used here, and Jesus is going to pick up on it in just a sec, it means that system of belief and way of doing life that is opposed to the way of God. And so here, it's used in, John is using at least in in that way. Um, And that's why when Jesus responds to them, He said, this is not the right time for me. My time has not yet come, for any time is right for you. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Because I testify to what is evil. It's not my right. It's not the time for me right now. Uh, And uh, he is going to, in fact, go up to Jerusalem secretly. And he actually does, he doesn't do any big stuff if you read on in chapter 7, but he does a lot, he says a lot of amazing stuff about himself as a, a source of living water. And um, that's a kind of a cool passage. But we're, we're here and um, he uses this word world to say, the world hates me. So this, and by the way, in John chapter 15, he says, the world has hated me, therefore if you follow me, the world will hate you. Now, not all the time, hopefully, But there will be times, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, and you never expect the hatred of the world for you because you follow Jesus, then you might want to ask the question, are you following Jesus? Because he said it would happen. It's it's right from his mouth. (laughs) The world will hate you if you follow me because the world hates me. And here he's saying that the world hates me. Now, a couple of categories that uh, I'm going to have Mark come up in just a sec. But um, I want to, I want to, these, these might help us understand what's going on in the person of Jesus as in his human self and how he differs from us and how much we need him in us to be truly human. He is the truly human person. He's, he's the par excellence of what human is. So uh, one thing would be uh, the, that he doesn't seem to let his brothers put their anxiety, or whatever it is they're carrying upon him. In other words, that pressure that comes from them, he isn't letting it affect him. And it's really hard to do that. Uh, If you're around anxious people, and they want to put their anxiety on you, it can be a very difficult thing to not let that happen. And the uh, anxiety or the pressure might come in from the area of comparing yourself to other people, or being popular, or doing things to impress people. I mean, that's, all of that stuff is, is 
basically what Jesus is dealing with here, call it social anxiety pressure or performance uh, pressure. Jesus is able, out of himself, to define himself in such a way where that's not coming at him. So that, that's one thing to note. And then the second thing to note is the, the little phrase FOMO, right? Fear of missing out. Fear of missing out. They're saying, go to Jerusalem. That's where the action is. You have to go there. You know, you feel this anxiety. If you want to be, if you want to be great, you have to go there. How many times do we feel that? If you want to get ahead, you have to do something. Pressure comes from someplace. And Jesus is not. He's, he says, I'm staying here in Galilee. Now he ends up going, and he goes up secretly, not out of that kind of pressure, but out of the will of his father. Which is interesting in that there is a FOMO happening in Jesus. It's fear of missing out on his father's love. There's, that is the best FOMO you could ever have, right? He's fearful of what would become of him if he doesn't do his father's will. If he misses out on his father's love. And that's what's driving him. Okay, Mark, come on up here. We're going to do this. Uh, I'm going to move this out of the way. Pull these, yeah. Arrange the furniture. And what we're interested in here is you spend all of your time as a um, pastor to students, high school and middle school. And uh, as we come to the end of this series, I I just thought it would be really good if we could ask you a couple of questions, maybe. And um, so these things up on the screen that we saw, uh, you are what you do and you are what others say about you. How do they produce this pressure of expectations in students' lives? Yeah. Um, does, uh, does anybody used to have one of these? A little rubber band ball. Does anybody still have one of these? Does anybody want to catch this? No. Um, I, think, I think a lot of times just spending time with students, spending time um, even reflecting on my own experience as a student, uh, there's a lot of layers that we build upon our lives and upon our identities that um, really stem from these two ideas that we are what we do and that we are what other people say we are. And so it becomes this layer of um, a false identity that is just wrapped up so deeply and so intricately as who we are as human beings and especially as students. Um, <clears throat> growing up, is there any uh, oldest, oldest children in the room? Oh, yeah, I feel you. Me too. Um, so, any youngest? Okay, you're cool too. It's okay. How about middle? Middle? I'm not going to forget about the middle. Okay, yeah. yeah, yeah we yeah, always right? get forgot. That's, yeah. I know. I'm not going to forget. I don't know. I don't know how that feels. But I was the oldest, and um, my so we're each 18 months apart. I have two younger sisters, and so um, my middle sister, um, we both kind of had like a pretty similar experience growing up in in high school. So. Um, we, uh, we both loved playing sports. We excelled at, in sports. Um, we worked hard to get good grades. Um, and we had really supportive friends and um, deep friendships. And so um, really what defined me all throughout high school, and my sister, my middle sister too, is um, my achievements as a person, as an athlete, uh, my grades, um, what friends told me who I was, how I, I defined myself as, uh, as a person. So I really didn't have to ask that question who am I? Uh, because these two statements were answering that from, for me. And so I really was never confronted um, with this question, who am I? My identity was so wrapped up in these two 
incomplete ideas of identity. And so um, I want to contrast um, that experience with, uh, with my youngest sister. And she, she was actually just up here um, a couple weeks ago visiting, and we um, got to talk about this. But um, her experience in high school was, was much different. Um, she, uh, she kind of always just lived in this shadow that she would say of, of, of my sister and I. And um, she never, she didn't like sports, she didn't like art, she didn't like drama or music. Like, she never really had that thing um, that she could go to to define herself. Um, she was an incredible young person, young woman, but um, she just never found good friendships in high school. Like, she uh, often found herself around people that just um, were destructive or hurtful or painful for her. And so, um, so she sat in this, uh, this reality a lot of time through high school um, where she was confronted with this question all the time of who am I? And, and she was asking that question consistently um, and, uh, and it was truly kind of the season where um, God was able to speak so specifically and so directly into her life. And so um, fast forward, she's, uh, she's now a kindergarten school teacher, um, and she is doing an awesome job, um, and she doesn't let her work define her. She knows who she is. Um, she has incredible friends. Um, people love being around her. She has an awesome boyfriend, and she's in this really healthy spot because um, she sat in a lot of painful years with this question of who am I, really digging into what that actually means and how God um, calls her uh, his beloved. And, and for me, um, I, I am still kind of sitting in this unraveling, right, because uh, I wrestle so much with uh, these ideas of who others say I've been or um, who I think I should be instead of really allowing God um, to speak into that. And so I contrast my experience with, with this uh, resilient identity, this resilient identity that my sister um, has cultivated and is continuing to cultivate now. So can I ask a... We're, hey, we're doing really good on time. So okay. I'm going to ask you a all bonus right, right. question. Here. You're the, like the time guy, so... I am, man. Okay. You know, I, when I do this, that... You okay, know, fair. Um, so, because you, uh, I know this about you, I did the reference checks on you. I know a lot about Uh-oh. you. Yeah. <laughs> but you are a guy who's performed well in the football, and I mean sports, and uh, not so much music, I get, but you know. I'm working on yeah, it. Yeah, you're working on it. Where's but, Matthew? Matthew, But you have, you do really, the, um, I mean, I remember the reference checks and how, what people said about you, and, and, and I got that sense that you, but so I think maybe it's hard for people who have performed well to not go into that you are what you do thing. I mean, it might be harder. What do you think? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's deep. Yeah. No, it's... Uh, it, it, I think... Um, I mean, the last eight years of my life has been an unraveling, right? And a lot of us sitting in this room... Um, Hopefully we've been doing 40 plus years of unraveling or four years or 18 months, right? Like a lot of the Christian life, a lot of discipleship, apprenticeship to Jesus is this unraveling of the identity that this world gives us. And so that we can take up this identity that God gives us. Yeah. And that's hard work. Yeah. If you do it, that's, that's really hard work. Yeah. Boy, that was good. You, you did well. Okay. Yeah. Shoot. You are what you do. Um, the other thing, I'm just going to point out one more thing before I ask you a question. In the text, even, it, when Jesus goes to Jerusalem, everybody wants to know who he is. So the question in John's gospel is, who are you? 
And Jesus is really the only one who knows who he is. But that identity question surrounds him. It's in a huge way his, his whole life. We'll get back to that when we close. All right, um, second question I have for you is how can students form uh, that, like your younger sister, uh, that resilient identity in Christ? Um, yeah, I, I think just very plainly, uh, this resilient identity in Christ um, is truly just this lifelong process of unraveling and reshaping our identity in Jesus. And it is a process, that of, right? That there'll be weeks or seasons where we continue to build upon this and our, our ravel becomes bigger. And then there's seasons where God is just really doing a work in us. And uh, we begin to slowly peel that away. And, um, and so during high school, um, I, um, I spent a whole lot of time at my kitchen table. Does anybody else like just love hanging at your kitchen table? Okay, I'm the only one. Um, so I, I sat in, that's where I did my homework. That's where we ate meals together. Most of the time I didn't want to do that, but my mom forced us to, and I'm, now I'm so glad that she did. But um, we had friends that would come over, and so um, the kitchen table was kind of something that, um, that really represented uh, my identity because for so long um, I had gone to these two questions around the table um, for people to form that. And that's who I became. And so um, fast forward to Christmas break of my freshman year in college. Um, I had come off probably some of the toughest six months that I'd ever experienced. Um, I had gone there as a freshman and uh, just felt like completely oversized and overwhelmed um, in in sports. Um, I really wasn't enjoying my classes um, for the first time in my life, I began experiencing like these anxiety attacks um, where I'd just go reeling for like hours on end, not really knowing where I was or who I was, um, and really just felt um, for the first time like I was encountering this question of who am I? Of who am I? And so I remember uh, sitting at the kitchen table, that same kitchen table that um, for the first 18 years of my life, only six months ago, right, I'd been there and fully confident thought I know, knew who I was. And, uh, and so when you're in college, I don't know if you, you did this before, but uh, when you're in college and you come home, right, like things are good. Like you're back, you're checking that refrigerator, but the bulb still worked. Mm, yeah, but still working. for some, like everybody goes to bed and you stay up for like hours on end afterwards, right? You're like the night owl now. And so, and so that was me, right? And so um, I remember sitting at our kitchen table and everyone had gone to sleep. My sisters were in bed, my parents were asleep, but um, it was for the first time I just began writing and journaling and, and praying and weeping and crying, just answering, trying to answer this question, God, who am I? God, who do you say that I am? Because I've spent so long listening to other sources. God, who do you say I am? And so uh, I was asking this right question in the right direction for the first time, asking God for these answers and not looking to what I did uh, or to what others said. And so uh, this resilient identity in Christ really begins with real encounters with the living God. And that was just one from my life of of remembering sitting at that kitchen table um, for the first time being confronted with this question, being able to sit with this question of who God says I am. You know, I had somebody tell me uh, one time that as I was considering becoming a pastor, that, uh, Mark, the greatest title you'll ever have 
is that you are a child of God. Never forget that. And if you don't have that title as primary in your life, you'll make a horrible pastor. It's cool. What do you think? I, I, uh, <laughs> that, uh, so two years later, my junior year at Christmas, um, I was a business major. And uh, in that same kitchen table I was sitting at, um, in a matter of like four hours on one of those late nights, I ended up um, not enrolling in any of my business classes and enrolling in all um, theology and biblical studies classes. And uh, that was like the turning point for me where I felt like for the first time I was pursuing this call to ministry that um, it's still unfolding and unraveling in a different way, I guess. But um, Yeah, but you and Lauren have a uh, kitchen table that, uh, you know, all these things happen. We have these two cardboard boxes. Okay. On, and it's really nice. <laughs> no, we do. We just got a new kitchen table. It's nice. It actually has chairs now. We'll take up a second offering later. Uh, all right. So I want to I wanna, uh, get us into the how, how kind of closing out this whole, whole passage. I'll take a shot and then I'll give it over to you again. But... I want to go back to Jesus. Uh, how does he get that sense of identity, that solid core uh, identity that's well-defined as a person? And um, in the first week of this series, which would have been like six weeks ago, we identified that. All, uh, the, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all do this. John does, John does something different, which I won't go towards today, but it has to do with the way he uses the word I am. And it, he uses that quite frequently. But he doesn't record the, the baptism of Jesus. Uh, and I want to. So, what Jesus hears from his father, what he's immersed in at his baptism, are the words, You are my beloved son and, or daughter, as we apply it. You are, my, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And, and to let those words wash over you, uh, this part of your baptism. But what immediately happens, and, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke all show this, and they, you have to read it this way. You, he goes from the baptism. Mark actually uses the word immediately. He went into the wilderness to be tested for 40 days or tempted. The word can be translated either way. And at the end of those 40 days, when he was in a very weak place, humanly, uh, the devil comes to him and tempts him. And the temptation is in his identity. Are you really the son of God? Are you really the son of God? And, and if you are the son of God, then... And Jesus resists that temptation three times. Now, when his brothers in this scene in chapter 7, and if you listen for this carefully as you read the scriptures, you'll see this temptation coming out in other places. His brothers echo here the voice of the devil. If you're really the son of God, if you're really the Messiah, you'll go up to Jerusalem and do something really big, and leave out the hard stuff, by the way. That's, and then as we consider our lives, we hear the echoes as well. We hear these things being said to us every day. I'm telling you, we hear it every day. You are what you do. You are what others say about you. We need Jesus. We need his identity. We need to hear his words. You are my son. You are my daughter in whom I love and in whom I am well pleased. Yeah, when I, um, when I first heard that we were going to do this series, uh, there's really no other series that I feel like speaks so pointedly and specifically to um, what my experience has been living on the plateau these last 18 months. And, um, and so I think we've kind of been talking about it a lot as it pertains to students, but um, 
Just last week, I, and I know that this is uh, this transcends this community and really relates to ours. But um, just last week, there was yet another um, um, catastrophe. It happened in Southern California. It was a school shooting, um, and um, and is at Saugus High School. I don't know if you'd heard, heard about this one, but um, this specific circumstance, uh, this this young guy um, on his 16th birthday, um, chose to come and to uh, to take the lives of some of his fellow students and himself. And um, the depth of pain that someone has to be in to make that decision um, on your 16th birthday is, uh, is so deep. And that's dark. Yeah. It's just dark. Yeah. And um, even though that was something that happened 1,500 miles away from here, I think all of us in this room know um, that that same type of pressure is, uh, permeates this community that, that we live in um, that is so real that our families that our students are living in and swimming in and don't even know it. And so um, I think when we, when we sit with that in the context of this series, um, what are we called to be as a church? What are we called to be as a community, as families, as individuals who offer and live into uh, a counter-narrative that is not that, yeah. that is not that? And um, and I think that this truly comes in this idea of um, seeking and cultivating this resilient identity in Christ that is, uh, that is hard, that is going to take a lot of unraveling, that is going to take a lot of work um, for all of us. It doesn't matter if you're a student, it uh, doesn't matter if you're in middle school, you're still uh, going to have to do this work because you're still being shaped by this. It doesn't matter if you can't even remember your middle school years, but I think most of us can, right? That um, there's still going to be work that's going to need to be done in this unraveling to really discover this identity that we find in Christ. And so um, I think that we can relate to to Jesus in this capacity at least that, um, or at least that I can, where um, now I'm kind of on this other end of, of seeing how my sister has progressed and um, I, I love visiting her. I love being able to see her. Um, just, I'm, I'm so proud, right, as a big brother. I'm so proud of my sister and the way that she has grown. Um, but that doesn't even compare to the, to the way that my parents feel about her. But that truly doesn't even compare to the way um, that God sees her. The ways that God sees how she has been confronted with this question who am I? And that she's allowed God to speak that truth into her life. And so uh, I think for many of us this morning, um, we have some unraveling to do, right? Whether we're students, um, any of us, we have some unraveling to do in this idea of pressures and expectations. And so may we be a community that seeks this resilient identity in Christ. And so um, I think we're going to transition um, into, uh, into a time to be able to reflect on this. And so I'd love to offer prayer for us. And can, I know. Can I say one more thing before yeah, you do? Sure, sure. I wanna, yeah, I mean, what are you going to say to me? I mean, I'm your boss. <laughs> well. No, can I, can I say something about Jesus? Please. Yeah, okay. Um, so it's a, I just want it, to, it struck me that um, as I was looking at this, that 
the the thing about Jesus that he didn't he didn't have that thing that we struggle with. What are you? You are what you do, and and you are what others say about you. And so his concern wasn't to be famous or um, well known. And he was just okay being in relationship with God in a way that identified clearly who he was. But the the irony is that he's the most famous person ever. Don't miss that irony. That somehow he is giving up that pursuit of answering those questions is the beauty of Christ. And the beauty of Christ can be the beauty in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now you can pray. <laughs> Lord, as we, uh, as we sit in this reality of uh, reflecting upon the different expectations and pressures and pressures of expectation that we live in as a community, that we are immersed in as individuals, that God, that you would meet us in our mess, that you would meet us in this process of unraveling, that through that, that we would be refined, that we would be found in you. And Lord, I especially pray for the ways that we as a community will model this for our young people, for our students, for our children, that we would be a community that is not about competition or comparison, but we would be a community that is found to seek identity in you. And so, Lord, as we do each of us our own unraveling, would you do a work in us that only you can, as you call us your beloved. Amen. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate that.